TED Audio Collective. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Deborah Bishop about her career designing for magazines, including her years working for Martha Stewart, and the tension between designers and editors. To me, design is content. Design and visuals, photographs, that is content. And that's something that I struggle with every day when I work with editors, because that's my belief. Here's Debbie Millman. Deborah Bishop is the creative director of More the women's lifestyle magazine. That's just the latest in a string of high-powered jobs dating back to her early career working with Paula Scher. Between then and now, she worked at Rolling Stone and House and Garden. Then she deployed her talents for 12 years at several Martha Stewart titles, including a stint as design director and initial creator of Blueprint magazine. As we say here in New York, she knows from typography, photography, and illustration, and she knows how to pull it all together in beautifully designed magazines. Deb Bishop, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. So, Deb, you attended the Alberta College of Art and Design in Canada. Are you Canadian? Yes, I am. I did not know you were Canadian <laughs> all these years. So, when did you know that you wanted to be a designer? I think I have to go way back, and you can appreciate this, Debbie, I know. Is it because I'm old? (laughs) (laughs) That's not what I meant. I know, I know. I meant that I used to stare at this talcum box that was my grandmother's, and I think it was the packaging, the, the type wasn't that great on it, but there was just something about it. So I knew that I loved things like that, old things, you know, vintage things, things that had type on them. But it wasn't till much later, maybe when I came to New York, that I really understood what graphic design was. And I I became obsessed. Oh, I can only imagine, given the work that you've done. But let's go back to the talcum powder. Okay. At that time of your life, were you sort of projecting yourself into those packages when you said that you thought I'd understand sort of your obsession with this? That was one of the things that I did. I'd look at these packages and imagine that I was the girl on the package. Yes, or, or um, no, I, it, was, it was more coveting. 
sing. Oh, okay. It was more, I know, I know that's a sin, but I, <laughs> okay. I, you know, it's, it was more just loving. I also love to play, and, and this is kind of strange, but um, I love to play my own taste game. Really? Now, I lived in this tiny little town in Quebec where we didn't have too many stores. So we used to look at the Sears catalog. I know I, this is really dating me. But, but I also so see your influence now. <laughs> <laughs> but when I would open up the catalog, I forced my friends to play what is the coolest thing, most tasteful thing on this page. And I know that sounds odd, but it, it graphic design has a lot to do with taste and visual propensity. And I was all about that. Well, I, I definitely understand the propensity, but talk to me about taste. What do you mean by taste? How does taste impact talent? Well, at least, you know, taste has a lot to do with your choices and how, you know, you, you break down your choices in graphic design, I think. Um, my taste in typefaces, my taste in color, my taste, yeah, a lot of things. If you want to use taste in on, on that level. So when did you realize that design was actually a discipline that you could study and master? Well, I certainly knew it in college at the Alberta College of Art, but it wasn't, you know, when you go to an art school that's, uh, and at the time, where you need to learn a lot of things, like the designers in Calgary, for instance, that's where that art school is, would need to, when they got out of school, the education was sort of based on the fact that you would need to illustrate. You might need to design. You might need to advertise. You might It might be more like an advertising job. So there, it wasn't specialized, it, not the way. You learned, had a very general education. And so when I came to New York and studied with Paula, that's when it really clicked. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's typography that I love. And that's when it was just like, boom. It's almost like I, I had known it but not known it. Your first job after you graduated Alberta College of Art and Design was with Paula Scher. Yes. This is before Pentagram. This is when she was a partner with Terry Coppell at Coppell and Scher. How did you first get Paula's attention? <laughs> Do you know the answer to this? No, no? I don't, and it sounds I don't know. juicy. Well, I, no, no, it's just funny. Um, my boyfriend at the time, who actually also was at the Alberta College of Art, I remember, you know, he gave me some advice, and I was upset. I had gone, I was a new kid in the school, you know, and all the kids, there were a lot of kids, or maybe the most popular ones, and not necessarily the best ones, were going to get to work on Paula's the yearbook. Um, but, you know, to make a long story short, his piece of advice was, I felt I wasn't getting enough attention in the class, and I wanted to work with Paula in the yearbook. And um, so he said, well, you know, Deb, you really have to, like, look at her when she's talking. Just really look in her eyes. Make sure she knows that you are, are the most <laughs> attentive student in her class. Now, and I knew I was one of the better students, but anyway, so for cl several classes after that, we had major eye contact. Oh my God. And at least I was, you know, <laughs> staring at her. So I was turning in good work, and she noticed it. So then did you, not only did you work on the yearbook, then you ended up working for No, I actually never ended up working on the oh, yearbook. Oh, you just leapfrogged the yearbook. And it's, it's all a very funny story. If you, I don't know if all of you know Paula, but anyway, what happened was she was hiring a couple of students from the class, and um, 
one of them, Richard Baker, came up to me and he said, did Paula talk to you? And I was immediately so excited because I figured, you know, maybe she was going to hire me too. And I was like, no. And he said, really? (laughs) Oops. It turned out she actually hired the wrong person first. (laughs) Anyway, it's a funny story. The wrong – So, but he wasn't the wrong person. No, he he wasn't. It was another girl that looked a little bit like me, but clearly, you know. Anyway, it was very funny. So I ended up getting the job in the end. And so you work with Paula and Terry or just Paula? No, I was pretty much Paula's assistant for four years. Paula's assistant for four years. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of chromateching, and um, I don't know if anybody knows what chromatech is. Why don't you tell stats. our listeners? Yeah, old well, school. I did. I mean, the first summer I was there uh, here in New York, or I guess it was the second summer, but I was working with Paula. Where did you live? Oh, I lived in Hoboken. Okay. Anyway, that's another story I could go on, on to. But no, it was funny because it was about 100 degrees outside, August. And I remember very well being in the stat room, which is, in Canada, we call them a PMT, which is a photomechanical transfer. Basically, you put whatever it is you want to copy instead of a copy machine, because it had to be good quality for color for mechanicals. So basically, you'd put your original in this big camera with this big light in this tiny little room. And God, I can't even remember how you did it. Anyway, and so you exposed the the paper to what, you know, in the camera. And uh, then you'd have to take another sheet of paper and you'd slide it through the developer. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And the smell of the chemicals. Yeah. And you'd slide it through the developer. And then I can still do it, and you know, with my eyes closed, just yeah. imagining with my eyes closed. Yep. Me too. And then you'd stand there, dee, 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 dee. And then you'd peel it apart, and there it was, this beautiful, you know, nice black imitation of whatever it was. Right. And those rooms were always so small, never had any windows. They were actually really good rooms to, like, make out with somebody in. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess heat's good. (laughs) Yeah. It was sort of like this room without the window. (laughs) And the students listening. (laughs) So... What was what was it like to work with Paula back then? I mean, this was like the very beginning of her big time fame. And what kind of projects were you working on? I was really lucky and Paula was very generous. She did a lot of book covers at the time, so I was helping her. I would I was the best book comper on the planet. Oh, I can I, I, I so believe that. I could you know, comp up those books because you had to do it all with Chromatech, which is like a silkscreen process and you had to rub down the type and the flat color, whatever it was you were doing, and it had to be perfect, right? Because then off it would go to Frank Matz at Simon & Schuster. Um, so I did a lot of that. And every once in a while, she would let me work with her. In other words, I'd get to do a version. That was amazing. At the time, I was very frustrated because, of course, none of my versions ever got picked. (laughs) But in retrospect, it was incredible um, that I got to compete with her and that she let me, you know, on some level, I think it was fun for her, too. It was was a little competition, a little friendly, you know, what are you going to come up with? Or for the studio, we could turn in more than one idea. So that was pretty good. And um, one time, we did a lot of record covers, too, because she just finished working at CBS for I think it was 10 years that she worked at CBS. And so she still did some album covers. They were petering out at that point. So one time she there was a contest in the studio. Everybody got to produce a record cover for it was a new group. And um, I turned in. I worked all weekend long. 
and I turned in, you know, maybe three ideas. And then she shipped all of them to EMI or wherever it was. Do you remember the band? I think it was Emerson Lake and Powell. Not Palmer. But it was ELP, but just a different P. Yeah, 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 exactly. A new P. Right. So this was like 84-ish, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Okay. (laughs) You remember that? Well, you know, I remember it was like big news, like Palmer left, ELP. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So um, anyway, so like they picked both my covers. So anyway, that was the hot, that was, I was so excited. And then, of course, they all left for the weekend and I was supposed to do the mechanical or prove the the proof when it came back, and I totally messed it up. And anyway, it's a long story. Wow! Yeah, I don't want to blame. Oh no, hardly. This is fantastic. Yeah. This is like design history. Oh yeah, it's amazing. I have some good stories. But oh, anything, I, anything else you'd like to share? <laughs> no, I was really lucky. I was a bit of a brat in retrospect. I remember a little cocky. Well, were you and frustrated that you weren't doing more design and doing more assisting? No, I just knew what I wanted to do and didn't want to do what I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And okay. but I was really and so luck very nicely Paula let me do what I wanted to do for the most part much to everyone else's chagrin. Now you say you were cocky, but in what way? I mean, how were you cocky? You had chops, you had ambition. What yeah. was cocky about that? Uh, I was probably overconfident uh, for some reason. I just didn't want to do certain things. I can't even remember what they were. I just remember that I was a little cocky. (laughs) (laughs) So I I have to ask you this sort of standard question, and I've been, I feel like I've been asking this a lot lately only because I seem to be interviewing quite a lot of people that have worked for Paula over the years. And so I, I have to ask, what was the biggest thing you learned from her, the most important thing you learned from her? Oh, so many things. So many things. I was so lucky to get that job. Anything, so lucky, anything. and lucky to even be in her class. Actually, mm-hmm. I'm really good at powerful design, typography, imagery. I think I learned some of that from her. I like very graphic things, but I always have. She, I liked her sense of humor. Yeah, she has a crazy ass. And wit and I think like the, the the certain certain things about using your sense of humor in your work. How much influence did she have on your typographic skills? Well, following just, her. Uh, working, well, well, working let, for her. I, I think I'm, I'm missing something about her influence, and that would probably be the history of graphic design. That would probably be the, the biggest thing, because I didn't know anything about it. At the Alberta College of Art, there was very little typography. Uh, you know, it was Letraset, whatever you could, you know, it was Optima. And the sort of love of the history of graphic design, the love that, the, the, how she designs, the, the, I learned from her. So how did you get the job at Rolling Stone? How did that happen for you? Oh, this is so much fun. It's like oh, a good. trip down memory lane. <laughs> um, well, I heard that, that Fred Woodward uh, was uh, looking for a freelance help to work on a book. I had left Paul as I think, you know, it's always freelance at the time. I was doing some things for Carol Carson, actually, at Scholastic. At Scholastic? Uh, yeah, she and Jean Marzolo did I Spy and all of those. They, oh, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that was an amazing thing, too. Oh, wow. I know, I know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I heard that, and he, I went on an interview, and he hired me to work on this book. It was called Rolling Stone, The Photographs. You know, we just got along really well, and I can't remember, but I don't think he had a job, but he somehow made a job for me, and so um, and then I started working on them after a couple of months or so. I started working on the magazine, and I remember being incredibly nervous because um, I'd never worked with so much text before, which is very nerve-wracking 
you know, especially in those days where you had to spec type. You didn't, couldn't just try it out. It yes, really, type was really expensive. It. You had to spec it and order it and, you know, had no idea about letting and well, a little bit, you know, when you do books, but not much, you know, because album covers, no. Books, maybe a smidge for the back cover or something. You know, I remember my, I was so tense that my hands were like, you know. Claws. Yeah, exactly. So you really worked in the heyday of Rolling Stone. I mean, those were the great historic years with some of the great covers and designs. Um, any juicy celebrity stories? I'm not a good groupie. I have to tell you, I'm not really much of a groupie. I'm kind of a snob. Oh, God, um, I'm such a groupie, Deb. I, well, you know, but, you know, at Rolling Stone, I was always busy working. That was the thing. I mean, we were, we loved doing what we were doing, at least I did. That did was you... more important to me. The only time I remember being starstruck was when um, John F. Kennedy Jr. came in, and I kind of followed him around the floor because he was so <laughs> handsome, but... I don't remember. I missed all the good ones. Madonna came in one day, and I wasn't there. <laughs> we were always working. Oh, like, man. let's not forget, like, when you work in the art department in a magazine, take note, people. You are always, always down. It's always down to the wire. Last second, you get that headline, the last, and you just have to go. So, I mean, we had a lot of fun, but we were there working, you know, two, three, four o'clock in the morning was not uncommon. I mean, every night I took car service home to Hoboken. Wow, every mm-hmm. night. Every night of the week, But you probably much. loved every second of it. I loved it. It was a challenge for me, and I loved it. Doing, you know, because you basically had three days to create a magazine layout. And, and you know, we didn't want to disappoint Fred. There's that. Fred has this charisma. You just don't, you, we didn't want to disappoint him. You want to... You wanted to create something great that he would think was great. So, there, you know, there was pressure. And so it was, you know, you had three days to do the layout and figure out what you were going to do exactly, like draw it up the way I would do, and three days to produce it because it was biweekly. Right. Right. What do you think of the magazine now? Um, no comment. Okay. Let's continue on. It sucks. Are you kidding? <laughs> no, it's no, okay. such, a, such a shell of its former great self. In any case, let's go back to you. Your your resume reads like a who's who in the world of publishing. After Rolling Stone, you went on to become deputy art director of House and Garden at Condé Nast. House and Garden was really one of my favorite, all-time, lifetime favorite magazines. I was devastated when the magazine shut its doors. And you arrived at the same time as Dominique Browning, who I think made that magazine the great magazine that it was. That was 1995, 1997. What was that like to work with such an extraordinary—I mean, you've worked with a lot of extraordinary editors, but Dominique has such a unique voice— um, and such a unique way of looking at the world. What was it like working with her? I wasn't there for very long, truthfully. I was there for to redesign with Robert Priest. And um, she was lovely. I mean, she's just lovely. I mean, I don't know. I don't remember that well. You know, it was really only about a year and a half or so. It was a tough startup. And, you know, I'm the first one. Um, anybody who knows me will know that I'm the first one to complain that I don't have enough time. <laughs> but I think in that case, we had too much time, too much futzing, too much, you know, it needed to happen faster, just in terms of process, because it was too much thinking it over. You know, um, sometimes these things are better when they happen. They, it's intuitive, and you just go. 
I want to talk a little bit more about pacing and sequencing and interpreting content when we talk more about your current job. I want to talk about you going to Martha Stewart. Um, You arrived at Martha Stewart Omnimedia in November of 97 and stayed about 12 years, right? 12 years. And I found a, a I found some work of yours in a really wonderful book called Catalog Design, The Art of Creating Desire by Diana Edwards and Robert Valentine. And you talk about going from Rolling Stone to Martha Stewart. And you're talking about Gail Towie, who's the the founding creative director at MSLO. Were you really worried about Gail not thinking your portfolio was robust enough? Oh, well, there's a funny story that maybe I was thinking at the time. A couple of stories. The first one being that I had an interview with Martha. Oh, so you had to do Martha before and Martha, Gail. Martha, and now I, I was, you know, as I was saying, I was a confident, and I had made a little name for myself with these, this Rolling Stone work and, and, uh, and, and House and Garden a little bit. And I, you know, Martha took one look at my portfolio. And it's hard for Martha to make that leap, easier for Gail to make the leap. You know, and she kind of flipped through my portfolio and checked it up, you know, checked over shoulder practically. And, well, you can't do that here. <laughs> and so that's probably what I was thinking about. Um, oh. And, and, and um, I was feeling probably at the time a little smug in that I knew I could do it. But maybe I felt that Martha and maybe Gail Little weren't so sure. Yeah, no, it all worked out great. And to Gail's credit, she did hire me, and you know she has exquisite design taste. And you know, I I, I got experience there that you can't get anywhere else. So, so what do you say when Martha Stewart says something like, "Well, you can't do that here." <laughs> Like, yes, well, ma'am. <laughs> you know, and you're only, what? I don't know how old I was. I'm not very old. And 12, I said, 13. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, I'm still 12. Um, no, uh, I think that um, I said something like, well, I think design is, I said, I don't know. I don't, she said something about photo experience or something like that. I don't think I said much to that. But yeah. my, my sort of thinking was, and I may have articulated that I felt that, that I'm a good designer and, and photography is so much about good design. And I can't remember something. <laughs> I think I was, I, I was in shock. <laughs> I would have been terrified. I'm just, I mean, I admire the fact that you didn't like pee your pants. <laughs> So your first job at Martha Stewart was art directing and launching their company catalog, which uh, was called Martha by Mail. And I remember when Martha by Mail first came out, it was as beautiful, if not more beautiful, than Martha Stewart Living. It was revelatory. Um, It was really the most beautiful catalog design I had ever seen. What was it like working on a catalog? How different was it from working on a magazine? I loved working on that catalog. Now, I was just sort of a newcomer to the photography, so it was really on the learning curve there, and I had incredible stylists working with me. So I, I don't take credit for all those beautiful images. That You know, that would be more like Fritz Karsch, who was the stylist. Fritz. And, and Fritz, is, that was tough, working with him, because he was just so brilliant and, and in that, and I was learning. What was really fun for me and that, you know, that, that I contributed to that was the, you know, the layout of the catalog, but it was more product development, like 
creating a genealogy chart that was beautiful with the filigree around the edge and creating the type that would match up with those old, um, you know, the bread tin, all of that. That was what my, it was like owning your own design studio. And and I remember all the gorgeous Fire King product shots and yeah, that green yeah, glass. Yeah, and... I mean, that was really fun. It was really fun. Talk it, about we Fritz. Would spend, we would spend like a month in the studio. A month? Uh, yeah, shooting it, you know, shooting all the different incarnations. It seemed like a month. Maybe it wasn't that long. But I just remember I was in the studio shooting for like days and days and days. Well, I don't know what to say about Fritch except he's brilliant. It had, what, I mean, and I, I've, I've spoken to him. I've spent time with him. I've gone to art shows with him. I mean, he is one of the most original minds in design creativity that I've ever met. How does something like that happen? Well, I learned a lot. I learned a lot like... from him, and that, that's how I had to think about it because I was really – I knew I was on the learning curve, and it was really hard for me at the time because I had all this confidence, design confidence. So I had made up my mind I was going to go to Martha Stewart and I was going to learn about photography. But there was this whole styling thing that was going on. They were quite snooty. Did, you know, did you ever have a feeling? I mean, you, you say that you were cocky and confident. Did you ever doubt your skills? Did you ever feel not like in you... design? I never. No, I knew what I was going to do with that catalog, and if I had Gail behind me, it would happen. So, and it, it, and it changed everything about catalog design. Everything. How did you persuade Martha or Gail that this is what you wanted to do, and this would be? the way it would look, and this is why it was going to work. Where did the confidence come from? Um, it, How did you know? It, it, it evolved. I mean, it, really, at Martha, you're anywhere you work on a publication, you're really problem-solving. You know, we were trying to move product, and the thing about catalog design, it's all about real estate. So it had to be organized very carefully before you ever went on the shoot, and that was my job, one of my jobs. It was a big job because you're doing all the collateral, the product development, organizing the catalog, meaning. And it was really tough because we didn't have, I don't know how to explain this. We had a lot of stuff, but it wasn't all cohesive. We might have had a pot and a vase and a... And you have to create an arc, right? Well, you're trying to create a beautiful layout, but you can't always put those things together. So you think, well, I'll just do you know, a lot of small shots. It doesn't really work that way. And also commerce is all about, you know, what's in the big picture because that sells more. Do you know what I'm saying? So you're taking the vase and, you know, the salt and pepper shaker and the tart tin and you got to get it all in that big picture. I'm just using that as an example. So it's about real estate, how much you sell. And and what makes catalogs lucrative is volume. So there were a lot of commerce and business issues that we had to deal with. Not as many as probably, you know, the really big catalogs do. Because we were a young company and we were sort of trying to find our way. So the organization of it was all about that commerce. So you were problem solving. It wasn't just what we like. And were you part of the team that made the decisions about what went into the catalog? I can't remember. Probably, (laughs) maybe not. Uh, We would conceive the cover, and Fritz would have been very involved in that. But usually the covers came out of the shoots, two, three weeks of shooting the product, and then the prettiest pictures we would put on the cover. 
After your success at Martha by Mail, you were promoted to vice president and design director and helped create several magazines, including Kids, Fun Stuff to Do Together, Body and Soul, and Martha Stewart, Baby. What was it like to create the inaugural issues of so many iconic and paradigm-shifting magazines? Well, startups are incredibly pressure-filled, incredibly stressful, but incredibly satisfying. And actually, I find if you have good people working with you and the right information, you can get the information that you need, and the business plan is good. Um, the s- startups are much more fun than, than uh, redesigns. And in what way? Because you're starting over. You don't have to redo something that's already been done, and you don't have to worry about your old readers. You're starting fresh with it's, – it's a new thing. How do you create an original look and feel and style of a new magazine? Where do you begin? How does that even begin to take form? I'm inspired by history. I'm inspired by, you know, other great work, vintage work. But the end result was usually business-related. And for me, it was actually fun to work within the Martha Stewart brand, but push it a little bit. In what way? That was fun for me because I could do that. I'm good. I'm, I'm Canadian, don't forget. Very polite. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're more conforming than Americans. I don't know. I know a bunch of Canadian designers. <laughs> you guys all seem to be pretty headstrong. I would all hardly right, say that okay. Marianne Banshees is uh, like that no, either. No, she's not. But, she's you headstrong. Know. You're headstrong. Okay. Come on. Well, you know. That was fun for me, was taking the Martha Stewart brand and pushing it, but I couldn't push it that much, you know. Well, did you do a lot of market research, or who made the final decisions on what design? every magazine was focus grouped on some level. And how influenced were you by the responses from your, I'm assuming, female consumers? Well, you know, baby, I don't remember a lot of focus grouping on that. People just loved that. We had the gap as an advertiser. I mean, what can single advertiser can't get any better than that because it was just beautiful through the whole thing. You didn't have any ugly ads. Kids, we ended up that that became a bit of a an issue, and we had to focus group it, and we ended up changing the covers. We started out with no cover lines and it was all pictures. And then we went and then we had to add some cover lines and then we had to add some more cover lines. And in retrospect, there were a lot of things that should have come out of focus groups for the kids magazine. It needed to be, we needed more, you know, subheads and call outs and to make it easier. Well, it's also Um, a real niche. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think it, it, you know, we ended up having a bit of a, a a problem there with who who are we gearing this to, parents or kids? So we ended up with kids fun stuff to do together. So, <laughs> you know, that one definitely needed to morph because of outside information, reader information. Well, despite all of that, during your tenure at Kids, the publication won Magazine of the Year mm-hmm. by the Society of Publication Design and an ASME for Best Design Magazine. And you won an unprecedented three Society of Publication Design Magazine of the Year gold medals. That's quite an accomplishment. Is that unprecedented? I didn't I, know. It that. is unprecedented. I, I wow. did check, actually. Wow, that's brilliant. <laughs> and then there's Blueprint. Let's I talk didn't about know that. Blueprint. I, um, yeah, no, Kids was really fun. And, and I can't, I have to mention Jody Levine because she was my partner and she was my editor. And she created the stuff that went in there. I told the stories. Though the two of us together, it was kind of like an advertising team. Uh, so, yeah, the blueprint. Oh, boy. 
Well, in the same year, I redesigned Martha's first acquisition, which was Body and Soul. And I, that was a strictly a redesign. And then we sent it back up to Boston. And then eventually, you know, they brought it back down and it became Whole Living. But I did the first three, two or three issues. And then after that, we started Blueprint. That was like the fastest, like craziest ride ever. Deb Bishop, that magazine was unbelievable, changed everything in terms of magazine design. How did you how did you come up with the ideas for Blueprint? How did you come up with the typography, the photography style? Where did that all come from? Oh, boy. Well, it's funny. You know, I've been very lucky in that I've always gotten to work on projects where my interests lie. And at the time, I was very interested in everything that Blueprint had to offer, and I was very interested in doing something a little edgier, which we were allowed to do. And we could, you know, it was meant to be as far away from living as possible, Martha Stewart living, which was an incredible opportunity. We were working with new editors that had never worked at Martha Stewart Living before, and the person I'm thinking of is Tom Prince, and he had come up with, or somebody had, I don't want to name the wrong people, but we had come up with the name Blueprint, which, you know, took a long time for us to actually get that approved, because names are really tough in terms of, you know. And, okay, we had a bit of a problem, and when you're talking about focus groups, the problem was, here's the name of a magazine for women and home, home fashion beauty, um, and how-to, all centered around a woman about 30 years old developing her own personal style. Because that's when you do it, when you're in your 30s. You, you, you're, and they're all at different, you know, they might be single, but have their own apartment. They might, you know, be married. So the, the demographic was tough. Anyway, we had this name, Blueprint, which is a great name. I still like it. But when we took it to the focus groups, the readers were not, it wasn't clicking. And we had given them a prototype that, you know, was very, very plain, all sans serif. And what they were supposed to do was just pay attention to the content. But instead, of course, they're all looking at the visuals. Surprise, And I I remember saying to Tom, let me design something because we, we have to reverse this. We can do it with design. So what I set about doing was creating something, finding a font that, to me, in my mind, was flippy. I was really interested in this sort of flippy thing. And I wanted, like, a tomboy, flippy, and I wanted to do something pretty. I wanted to do a pretty woman's magazine. So that's really what the whole shtick was, design-wise. It was tomboy. It was taking architecture and mixing it with, with frill. It was taking measurements and putting a frill on it. It was like hardware store meets Victoria's Secret. Yeah, or Victoria's (laughs) Secret. You know, it was always in my mind as I was designing something like that. So I was also, I always have been very interested in what was going on in the, on the boys' magazines, what was happening with GQ, what was happening at Details, Details in particular, at the time. And so I was like, well, yeah, if it's a tomboy, you know, why can't a women's magazine be designed as beautifully, you know, with as much design in it as a men's magazine? Because that's uh, still a big question that I have is, like, so why, how much design will women, can women tolerate? You know? Why is that? Why is that? I don't know. 
I, I really, I'm still trying to ask that question. I'm sure Anna Winter could answer it for you. <laughs> okay, we'll have to ask her. So, but, so Blueprint lasted eight issues. What happened? Why, um, why didn't it take off? Well, I, I really shouldn't be the one to say that. I was not privy to the decisions at the top. Um, we, it was just handed down to us. It was a very expensive magazine to produce, and I think there were a lot of different ways we could have made it cheaper. But I think in the end, they just, you know, startups of magazines are very, very expensive. That's why nobody's doing it anymore. Martha Stewart at the time was a, a public company, and still is a public company, and they, they just wanted to spend their money elsewhere. That's a lot of money to be spending on a startup venture. And I, you know, seem to be doing quite well in retrospect to me for such a, a young magazine. But I think that in, it would have been a, a major investment to keep it going for another five years or so. Startups usually don't make any money for the first seven years. There are a lot of magazines at Martha Stewart that no longer exist. What is your prognosis for the future of the company? Do you think that they will survive? I think it's all up to Martha. It's too much pressure, I'm sure, yeah, but, yeah. you know. Well, now you're the direct, the creative director at Moore Magazine. You've been there since 2008. You came in and really revamped a magazine in a way that um, is quite remarkable. I read that you said, though, that when you first got there, you missed the squeaky clean environment of Martha Stewart, and you never realized how much you detested carpeting. Oh, <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> well, you know. I loved everything about working at Martha Stewart. I mean, certainly every day you'd go in and it was sparkling and the the inspiration that you would see on the walls every day. You know, we had our own prop house. We had our own style department. So you'd go in there and that was inspiring. You'd go into, and not just fonts, not just type. I mean, yeah, I mean, there were be- was beautiful design going on too, but it was all this other stuff that I thought was incredibly inspiring at the time. So, <clears throat> I lost my train of thought. What were we talking uh, about? Carpeting. Oh, carpeting, yes. There was no carpeting. Um, <laughs> and when I got to the offices at Meredith, I mean, we had really old carpeting, and it was quite disgusting. Have you had any influence on the um, way that the offices are decorated? The now offices and... are nice now. We moved. So I have something to say about the location of ah, the offices. Where is the location? Uh, just somewhere I'd rather it wasn't. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I read that you, when you first got to Meredith, that you wanted to create a magazine that you would get in the mail and that, unfortunately, you're a tough customer. And when you got there, you immediately set out to redesign and elevate the content for women over 40. So I have two questions about that. It seems as if you are very involved in way more than just creative direction at Moore. It seems like you have a real voice in that magazine and elevating the content was more than just the decoration. It was also the gravitas and stature of what was in the magazine. Is that fair to say? I, I don't know. I Moore has some very serious articles in there and, and well written. And, you know, I certainly can't say that that I elevate that. That's already elevated. I think what I meant by that was, you know, to take fashion, the fashion content, and make it better. That I actually haven't been as involved in as I would like to be. But I think I meant by elevating the visual. See, to me, design is content. Design and visuals, photographs, that is content. 
And that's something that I struggle with every day when I work with editors because that's my belief. The, the visuals of a magazine are just as important as what the, the content it and is editors, editors have a hard time with that? Or? Yeah, they usually think that it's, you know, you just like dial up a photograph. Oh. It's a struggle. And I think it's because they've never designed. It's tough, you know. And I always try to say, well, look, you know, my process is not that different than the writer's process. Um, In what way? And, what do you mean? You know, you start with a big idea and you narrow it down. If they were listening to this, they'd be furious. But this is exactly it. And I used to say this, and oh, boy, did it get thrown back in my face. I do not press the button on the computer, and it comes out at me. But I honestly think that that's what, I think that's what they think. I think that they think, and I think editors of magazines in particular think that what we do, we do very quickly. Um, It doesn't take much thought. I mean, most of us didn't go to you know, Harvard, and um, is a different kind of smart. It's a different kind of talent that goes into it. But the creative, it's still a creative process. It's still, you start with a big idea, and you may start with an idea, and it completely changes as you're writing it, right? Absolutely. Well, and same thing with the design. Right. And I, you know, I still, I feel very strongly about not selling my, like backing myself into a corner. You know, I may start with an idea, but by the time I assign it to the illustrator, or the, there's a process. There is process. And once you go through that process, things change. doesn't mean it's bad. It just might not be what we started with. So, same as writing. Same as writing. And this is what the kind of thing that you have to explain to an editor because they want to know exactly what you're going to do. With, they feel, you know, it's their writing, their piece. And what exactly is going to be the outcome? Well, you don't always have that answer. And what happens is, unfortunately, is if you don't come up with that exact answer, then it's like, well, you're not very good. Do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Like, so the, that, and then that's just an example. But those are the kinds of things that you deal with. And I'm sure you deal with that with any client, you know. But it, when you're working with an editor, it's more than your client is really. Well, you're working with them every single day. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so you know, I I actually take the Rocky Harwood advice I read in the SPD Gold book, which was don't oversell yourself, don't oversell your ideas, just work towards a good outcome. Now, I was under the impression that more was for women over fifty, but. From what I've read now, it's women that are over 40. 30, 40, 50. 30, 40, 50. Because oh, 50 sometimes. is the new 30, right? <laughs> Gloria Steinem is 80 today, and I'm like, this is what 80 looks like. Yeah. Um, in any case, are there specific design challenges that you've encountered at magazines for women? Are there, you, you mentioned that it seems like men's magazines just tend to be better designed, but is there a specific way that you have to approach designing a magazine for women? Yeah, and I think the the issue with women's magazines, at least I feel, is they need to be, they always need to be pretty. So the art needs to be pretty. I'm not saying it has to be script, but there has to be, it has to feel like a women's magazine, and there's a certain feel that it has to have. It's not that easy to articulate, but you don't want it to, to feel too much like a a men's magazine. Now, I have a little bit, I feel that because more is for strong women, that I have a little bit of 
room there <laughs> room, to play. To play. So. Um, you know, so no butchy I will type say, though, right? Yeah, but you know, it can't be too ugly. Put it that way. It, it has to be pretty on some level. Does that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would a, say there's that, certain. It's like when you do a beauty article, it needs to look like a beauty article. That's a good a good example. Well, if I had to describe the Deborah Bishop style with one word, I would likely use the word elegant. More Very than nice. pretty. I'll, I'll take it. That that's sort of the way I feel about your work. I I almost feel like I could recognize a Deborah Bishop spread because of the elegance, the typo, the typographic elegance, the interplay between illustration and type or photography and type. But you've spent a lot of time also working on Moore's covers, I believe. Yeah, uh, boy, the covers. Uh, what a what a journey that's been. I mean, some but, of the most remarkable women working today. Yeah. I, I think that when Peggy Sirota agreed to do, uh, she's a photographer, when she agreed to shoot our covers, that was a huge turning point for us. It's it's really, really tough to find someone who can really do what we want to do on our covers. And, you know, my editor has certain things that she really wants on the cover. She wants the background. She wants movement. She wants... Um, you know, she doesn't want the typical seamless, you know, in other words, white or gray backdrop like an L would do, which I love L covers. But she that's she doesn't want to look like a fashion magazine so much. It, it's kind of we want to look like friendly Vogue is what we want to look like. <laughs> it needs to be friendlier. Smarter. Smart, too. friendly. Yeah. What do you predict to be the future of magazine publishing? Oh, oh boy. I don't have a crystal ball, that's for sure. I think it's just going to morph with technology. I don't think it will ever be the same after the recession and with all of the technological advances that we have. I don't think it's ever going to be the same. I think it's going to change. I don't know how the tablets are going to translate, but I would assume it's going to go somehow in that direction. They're very expensive to produce magazines. Do you think that they have a future? Do you think there's a place for them in our culture? You know what what I would guess, and I may be completely wrong, is that it'll end up being niche magazines. There'll be some really big magazines that are left standing, I don't know for how long, but the the strongest will survive. And then there'll be these great little magazines, indie magazines, that people start themselves, like a Gather or a, you know, um, Uppercase or a, I think, I think that's where they'll be. That's your favorite magazine, isn't it, Uppercase? Well, I do love that magazine. And, and I, you know, I have to admit that I partly said that at SVD. Well, partly. And it, I do love it. But, uh, you know, the, that was started by, I don't know. Janine Van Gogh. Right. Yeah. And she is from the Alberta College of Art and started it in Calgary. So I was very proud of that. And I wanted to give her a, a boost, even though I do. I think it's beautifully designed and I love looking at it. And I have a whole stack in my office. So. Well, I think that the future of magazine publishing includes your work, then we'll be very lucky. So, Deborah, thank you so much for being on Design Matters. Thank you so much. You can check out Deborah Bishop's work every month in More Magazine. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. 
Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.